0: So one thing I try to do less of in these moments is shoot from the hip, especially on uh, Easter Sunday, where I'm probably — I don't want to know how bad I get roasted on most Sundays at the lunch table at your houses, but today may be, uh, you know, a a special roasting. But I'm going to shoot from the hip for my opening comment. i got a comment and a confession. Uh, Comment is, kids ask the best questions, and uh, my kids — my second-born — 19-year-old was stumping me big time this week with Bible trivia, and it wasn't just like stump the professor, it was like some really good questions from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I don't have a clue <laughs> what the answers are, uh, but before the service today, a, uh, a little boy walked up to me and said, I'm not going to say his name, I don't want to embarrass him, uh, it's not embarrassing, but said to me, Pastor Jordan why are you preaching on the crucifixion on resurrection sunday and uh i didn't i wasn't i didn't feel very quick-witted in the moment so i said that's a really good question my confession is and uh you know all joking aside uh i don't want to get hokey and superstitious not that at all but I would say I'm experiencing some significant spiritual warfare today. Uh, In a variety of ways I'll save you the details from. It's shown up in being short with my wife. I don't have to confess my sin to you, you're not my confessional booth. It's shown up in being silent to my children. It's shown up in being disgruntled about a little menial task. And I'm not trying to be hokey and superstitious. I believe in spiritual warfare. I think that's part of the answer to the child's question. Because I really just want to say one thing today. And I want to say it over and over. If it's the last thing I do on this side of eternity, I just want to say to you precious people, Christ died for your sins according to the scripture. And he rose again from the dead, according to the scripture. And I just wanna say that to you for the next few minutes over and over again. Nothing novel, nothing you haven't heard before. I wanna say it to you, so help me guide from two or three phrases in John 19. On this resurrection Sunday morning, We are taking part in the very same thing that we celebrate here at Grace Church, and many other churches in our world celebrate every Sunday morning. Reason churches, for for those who wonder, the reason that, that Christian churches gather for worship on Sunday since the first century is because the king of the universe got up from the dead on Sunday. That's why we gather on Sundays. Since the early part of the first century, Christians all around the world have gathered on what we call the Lord's Day to begin our week by resting in the promises of the gospel, not by working our way to God. We begin the week with being reminded about the gospel, or as Luther said, we're so stupid that we need the gospel beat into our head weekly or we would forget it. We come to listen to God's word, to seek his grace, to confess our sins, and to ask for his help to honor him in our lives. So for about a year and a half, this church has been walking straight through the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters, and you may think, man, you guys are some really slow readers. Uh, 21 chapters, you've been in there for a year and a half. Um, But I feel like we've barely even scratched the surface, and as the Lord would have it, our sermon series in John's Gospel falls on the crucifixion account today. On resurrection Sunday so that's my longer answer to the to the question I got we're devoting two weeks actually to the very same text we haven't done that one time in a year and a half so this Sunday and Lord willing next Sunday it'll be the exact same passage my prayer and my aim today is to give a big picture in this message about the cross and resurrection of Jesus big as in whole Bible And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, Pastor Matt, who's been leading our service, will take us into more of the detail of the account that's found in John 19. I want to read it with you and then seek the Lord together as we consider it. Join me in John chapter 19. I'll pick up the reading in verse 16. If you have a Bible, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. You can listen along or you can follow along. John 19, beginning in verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. So he, that's Pilate, then handed him, that's Jesus, over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha there they crucified him and with him two other men one on either side and Jesus in between Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross it was written Jesus the Nazarene the king of the Jews therefore many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew Latin and in Greek So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. They put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I thank you that we have a done religion, it is finished, not a do religion to try to earn our favor with you. Thank you that Jesus has indeed finished all that you require for sinners like me and like us to be able to come favorably to you forever and to be adopted into your family. Pray today that you would, as has been prayed already several times, that you would supernaturally, third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, that you would open spiritual eyes and ears to hear, to understand, and to believe the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for today's part, I just want to pick up three lines out of that passage we just heard read. And then, as I mentioned, Lord willing, next week we'll get more of the context and detail in it. The, the three lines that I want to pick up from John's account of Jesus' crucifixion and dipping into his resurrection, which is found in the next chapter, chapter 20, are they crucified him, in direct fulfillment of the scripture and Jesus was in total control I don't know if you saw those three but I'll try to point them out as we go along first they crucified him you see it in verses 18 and verse 23 in verse 18 the new American standard has in four words there they crucified him and then in this translation verse 23 then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus Well, there it is. Now, this may sound kind of underwhelming to those who know anything about Christianity and about the Bible, because maybe you've heard that all Christians believe those four words are the main point of the entire book. But John only gives in the original three words translated there they crucified him. Four words, three words, to what I would say is the second most important event in human history. Second, if you want to separate the events into two, but really one major gospel, good news, that's what gospel means, event, the death of Jesus, if you want to separate the two, the second most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus, the most important event in human history. And John only gives four words. There they crucified him. What I don't want to do today is what in my younger years, and I think a little less spiritually mature if there's been any progress, what I don't want to do today is make your stomach churn with the brutality. I have preached those sermons. I do think that there's biblical merit to substantiate why we should preach those sermons. The crucifixion of Jesus was absolutely horrendous. But I don't want to take your mind's eye to all the detail of the brutality of what it means in those four words. There they crucified him. I do think it's stomach churning, nauseating. If you could smell the decomp of the bodies, you might get nauseous. You've all heard some of those stomach-churning details of the horror of Christ's death. It was indeed a vicious form of execution. It was slow, purposely slow. It was excruciating, and it was intended to kill, but to kill in a way that brought extreme agony. It was not the way that all criminals were executed. It was reserved for the worst of society. But John, like the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not driven by sensation. He does not labor the details of the murder of Jesus. As soon as I say that, I can think in my mind right now of lots of minute detail. He's primarily after something else. He wrote with a burden, a spirit-inspired reason. The reason he says some things and the reason he leaves other things out that he could have said. In fact, he tells us in the next chapter if he would have written everything that Jesus said and did, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books. So he's telling us that he's selective in what he did say. And he tells us the reason that he selected the things that he did write. He wrote particularly the miracles of Jesus, the seven signs in John's Gospel, and all the remaining account In John 1 to 21 for a reason and he said that his reason for writing is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing upon him you would have life in his name he says that you can turn the page if you want to it's in the very next chapter chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 that's why he wrote what he wrote but as I mentioned he had a burden And that burden is that you would believe, and I believe his account, John's, of the crucifixion of Jesus has a particular burden. That is that you, yes, would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But particularly, his crucifixion account labors to help us to see that Jesus is the substitute, the in-your-place sacrifice. He's brought the theme of substitution out in a variety of ways before he gets to John 19. It's called the passion narrative from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. You could even back up into his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified takes up a third of John's 21 chapters. Pretty bad way to budget a biography of the most important person who's ever lived. To give a third of your material to one week of his life. Unless, of course, that's the point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do the same thing. About half of Mark's gospel is devoted to seven days of the life of Jesus. That's the point. And when we read John's gospel, we read him already weaving in this theme of substitution. Just in the passion narrative. We've read about, just a couple of weeks ago in our sermon series, we bumped into this gentleman named Barabbas who was released and Jesus Crucified in his place. I say in his place on purpose because Mark and Matthew use the same word for the two men crucified beside Jesus that John uses for Barabbas. Mark and Matthew, Matthew 27, Mark 15, and I quote, two robbers were crucified with him. In the original, John 18, 40, Barabbas was a robber. Same word. So the two people who literally died beside Jesus are described by John with that word. So we see substitution already starting to emerge. The fate of Barabbas should have been the fate of the two men who were hanging on crosses on either side of Jesus. We can see John pulling this thread of substitution leading up to the death of Jesus as we listen to Pilate talk about Jesus. He had never met Jesus before that day. But when he met him, it took a grand total of what it takes you about three minutes to read for Pilate to say three times, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Why then is he being led away to be crucified? Because John wants you to know He's a substitute. He's standing in the place of others. Again, pulling this thread of substitution, John labors the point. He actually says it twice. There are not many things he says twice. But just in the Passion narrative, John highlights two times, John 11.50, John 18.14, that Caiaphas, the high priest that year, had prophesied that it was expedient that one man die for the people, than for the whole nation to perish. Or John 18, 14, it is expedient, Caiaphas said, for one man to die on behalf of the people, a substitute. So in John 19, here's Jesus. And instead of a guilty nation, which John said in the very first chapter of John's Gospel, We're not meant to a la carte, verses of the Bible. Just rip them out of the bigger picture of what the whole book is saying. In in John 1 11, John began by saying, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And at the end of his gospel, Not only did they not receive him, they couldn't stand him, they wanted him dead. It's those people standing in the courtyard crying out, crucify him. But here is John's point. He came to die in the place of guilty sinners. He came on a rescue mission of God's love in a way that the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand. And in a way that many in our day have zero apprehension of. In a way that we get no indication from John or the other gospel writers that Barabbas ever came to understand. Jesus was the substitute for guilty sinners. John knew when he wrote this book some 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He knew what he was writing about. And the way we know he knew is because he wrote some other stuff too. And in his other letters, he can't get out of his mouth concepts like Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, he who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Do you hear substitution? John wrote that sentence. He also wrote this sentence. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you hear substitution? He also wrote this sentence. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you hear substitution? So my point is this, John knew what the cross of Christ was about when he was writing this chapter, so when he only gives you four words, there they crucified him, and we just breeze by that and don't think about the implication and ramifications, then we're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice. And we're ignoring the reality that the New Testament is absolutely gripped by. I don't know how you feel when you read your Bible, but I hope you feel like it reads you. I hope you feel like it grabs you by your collar and pulls you close and won't let you go. And it makes you stare into the face of Jesus until you reckon with him. Because the New Testament is absolutely loaded with the interpretation of the cross as Jesus being your substitute. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the cross is all about. John wrote his whole gospel so that the world would know that you can have your sins washed away by the death and resurrection of this one sacrifice. He does want us, I believe, to see something more than the brutality of Jesus' execution. It was brutal, but it's absolutely beautiful to the eyes of faith. In that whipped and lacerated back, in that forehead that has gouges cut in it from the thorns from the date palm, in the wounds in his wrists and in his feet, John wants you to see mercy and grace and redemption. John wants you to see the obliteration of the penalty of my sin and your sin. He wants you to see pardon and rescue. He's been building up to this point his entire book. When I say substitution, to conclude our first consideration, think about this. When I say substitution, this is what I believe John has in mind when he writes about the cross in John 19. He has John 1 in mind, where John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the next day, after Jesus' baptism, he says to his own disciples, John the Baptist to his own disciples, behold, the Lamb of God, the substitute for your sins, the sacrificial lamb. What's all this lamb talk about? It's about Exodus 12 it's about when God judged Egypt for their God belittling sin through the death of the firstborn in every single house that was not covered by the blood you can go read about it in Exodus 12 it's called the Passover and when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God he means what Paul said in first Corinthians 5 Christ our passover also has been sacrificed he's the lamb he's the substitute you get to go scot free because somebody else died in your place he's been building this point not only from chapter 1 he can't get away from it you all know john 316 you all know it but do you know it it's the exclamation part a uh, point on verses 14 and 15. Do you know it? John 3, 14 and 15 give you the foundation for John 3.16. What's in 14 and 15? Numbers 21. That's what it's about. What's Numbers 21? All the guilty complaining against God people who deserve hell and experience the curse. They were snake-bitten they were dying. God tells Moses to do something totally bizarre. This won't work, God. Yes, it will. Make you a bronze serpent, serpent, put it on a standard, put it on a pole. Anybody who looks at it will live. They'll be healed from their snake-bitten curse. Seriously? Is that the way physicians treat people today? How prideful, how entrenched in your sin how hard-hearted how stiff-necked do you have to be to literally watch your kinsmen die by the dozens and not turn your head to look at a pole with a serpent on it that Moses is holding up in the air how sin-sick do you have to be to not just look numbers 21 says everybody who looked lived They were all cured if you would just look, but not everybody would look. And John 3, 14 and 15, as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be raised up so that everyone, not who looks, not what Jesus said. It's not what He said. So that everyone who believes on Him will live. For God so loved the world. John's had substitution in his mind from the beginning. He can't stop talking about it. And in the other books of the Bible, he was privileged and inspired to write. First, second, third John. and Revelation, he's constantly talking about the Lamb who is the substitute. What I'm saying is that John believed why Jesus was on the cross. And that's what he wants you to believe, too there they crucified him they did they did but paul tells you why jesus died for all so that they who live that's john's whole point believe and live so that they who live that's not everybody That's people who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus who died for them. They who live, they who live so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's why John wrote John 19. So the first thing I want us to see, verse 18 and 23, there they crucified him. There's not a more loaded statement in the entire Bible. They didn't know why but John wrote so that you would know why. I told you I have a burden to give you a big picture, so two more considerations. I said second, they did so. They did crucify him, but they did so as a direct fulfillment of Scripture. Lord willing, next week, more detail on this. I just want to say two things. Look at verse 24 and 28. The middle of verse 24, this was to fulfill the Scripture. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I'm thirsty. Do you see it? This crucifixion was not happenstance. There was not one detail of it that was coincidental. So John explicitly says twice in his account that the crucifixion of Jesus happened as a direct fulfillment of Scripture, but I want you to know that every single phrase he writes in John 19 is an allusion to an Old Testament passage. He says explicitly twice, if you have a biblical lens to see it, you can't unsee it. Everything in this chapter is a direct connection to an Old Testament account that pointed forward to the coming Redeemer. The two that he makes explicit, verse 24, is about his garment, his undergarment, his seamless, woven-in-one-piece garment. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. That's a direct fulfillment, as many of you know, of Psalm 22. Listen to the context of that verse in Psalm 22. I'm reading from that psalm. Imagine Jesus saying this from the cross. They open wide their mouth at me. As a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Let me pause there for just a second. Have you ever hurt so bad? So deep? You can't tell if it's in your muscles or in your bones. It's just deep. And you feel like you can count the bones where your pain is. Jesus said, I can count all of them, all 206. He's hurting so deep in his body that he can feel the pain isolated in every little crevice of his humanity. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. So when John says, This was a fulfillment of Scripture, what he means is Psalm 22 was playing out while Jesus was on the cross, and I don't think the soldiers had a clue. As many of you know, Jesus quotes that same psalm as recorded by the other gospel writers. John doesn't include Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22:1, 1. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's known in theological circles as the cry of dereliction. Forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We tiptoe on the precipice of mystery when we try to understand what it means for the Son to be forsaken by the Father, and there are definitely heretical ways to understand it. The Trinity is never divided. From eternity to eternity, there is no breach in Trinitarian relationships. And there is a forsakenness of the Son by the Father. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as recorded by the other gospel writers? I want you to hear the emphasis of the relationship. My God, my God. We've said it here before. Those of you who've been bludgeoned with my preaching can probably finish my sentence already. But it's worth thinking about again. The only time Jesus refers to his father as God is in that verse. Every other time Jesus ever talks about his relationship with God, he calls him Father. What do we learn? We learn that even in his forsakenness, when he couldn't find the Father's face and his favor, all he had was his back and his judgment. Even then, the Son is trusting his Father as God. He believed in your stead. But I want you to hear also Luke 23, 46 says, and I used to say this wrongly, and God, please erase all those sermons from anybody's memory. (laughs) I used to say this phrase, he died under the wrath of God for you. No, he did not. No, he did not. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not the last phrase he said. He returned to Father, Luke 23, 46. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He was totally restored. I believe he drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin and mine before he died. He was totally restored to fellowship, Father, before he breathed his last breath. Then he gave his spirit. The second explicit statement that lets us know that this was a direct fulfillment of Scripture in John's account is, as I said, in verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I'm thirsty. And when the soldiers saw their jar of cheap wine sitting by, they tried to do a little joke and stick it up in his face but it was sour, bitter, vinegary, wine. They did it because they're demented, depraved, demon-filled, rebels against God who right now are perishing in the devil's hell. That's why they did it. And Psalm 69 says they did it because God planned it that way reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick and I looked for sympathy but there was none and for comforters but I found none they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink a thousand years before he was born God told us That some sinister soldiers would stick a reed in his face with sour wine. Do you want to know what's really amazing? That nobody believes. How can you not believe? John doesn't want us to miss that the man on the middle cross is the one to whom the entire Old Testament points. He's the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Not only was the dividing of his garments and the offering of sour wine a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and John tells us that explicitly, but I've mentioned nearly every phrase in John's account can be traced back to an Old Testament allusion that points us to the person and work of Jesus on the cross. I'm not going to take you into all of them, but I'll prime your pump. You read Genesis 22 lately? Go look at Jesus carrying his own cross beam up the hill of Golgotha in John 19. And you can't not see what was being pointed toward in Genesis 22. This is what Paul's talking about when he said, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scripture. Every single thing that happened in the crucifixion and resurrection account of Jesus was according to the Old Testament. Which leads to our third and final consideration. Not only did they crucify him, number one, according to the scripture, number two, but Jesus was in total control. I believe of the entire situation. Verse 30. Therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're already told in verse 28 a very strong clue it's not even a clue it's an open secret that when Jesus knew all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture he then said some things he knew what was happening he knew what needed to take place before he gave up his life he wasn't willing to let go of his life until every jot and tittle every iota of scripture had been fulfilled in him And so here, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. John does show in a variety of ways that Jesus was in control of the entire crucifixion account. We've talked about him arresting the people that came to arrest him in Gethsemane. 600 soldiers falling on their back. Him declaring to them who gets to go free. Who gets to go bound? He's in total control of the whole situation. We know that Jesus was granting eternal life even from the cross. How in control do you have to be to be able to look over to a man next to you who's about to breathe his last breath and say, you're mine forever. You'll never perish. You get paradise on top of paradise with me, me. You get me forever. He's saving people as he's dying on the cross. Literally in that man's life and definitely in the lives of a lot of people in this room. As he's on the cross, he's arranging the care and welfare of his mom. He's deciding with whom and where she lives. Why not his other brothers? Because they didn't believe yet so he gives him to John the beloved the, gives her to John the beloved disciple to care for his mom but when verse 30 says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit John wants us to remember something that he had written earlier again chapter 19 is not in a vacuum it's part of a book and in the book in chapter 10 John tells us something that Jesus said Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Nobody takes my life from me. Not four Roman soldiers, not Pilate, not Caiaphas, not an enraged mob. Nobody. Nobody takes my life. You can't kill the Prince of Life which is what Peter said in Acts. So Jesus, verse 30, bows his head and decided it was time. He gave up his spirit. I do believe that this means he never would have died had he not yielded his spirit up. When he says, it is finished, it's one of the distinctions of biblical Christianity. It's why I prayed my opening prayer that some of you would be set free from a self-made imaginary religion that you call Christianity, that's nothing of the sort, and that others of you would be brought in for the first time to the beauty and glory of true biblical Christianity. It is finished. The distinction of Christianity from every other religious construct that has ever risen is that we believe the deity died for the damnable. No other religion has the deity dismounting his throne and dying in the stead of the damned, deserving race. Only in Christianity does the king die for the criminals. But also, and very, very important to true Christianity, is the king does not rise from the dead and say now prove that you're worthy of my love christianity is all of grace i prayed at the beginning we have a done religion not a do religion it is finished you are saved by works it's just not your work it's the work of christ who accumulated All the righteousness God requires for you in His life of perfect obedience. John 17, having accomplished everything the Father gave Him to do, He brought that life of perfect righteousness to the cross as a payment for your sin and mine. I've actually prayed that I wouldn't get emotional. And I'm trying really hard. I cannot hardly believe. I can believe it. But if I think about it for more than two seconds, it's hard to believe. I'm exonerated. I told you at the beginning of my sermon, I sinned this morning. It's all paid for. Past, present, future, gone. I'm declared innocent in the sight of the only perfect God because somebody else who was worthy died in my place. Jesus did all the work for your redemption. That's why we sang at the beginning, come ye sinners, all the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. How do we know, how do we know that God accepted his sacrifice? Well, about 500 people were still alive when the books of the New Testament were written who said they saw him alive from the dead. you go ask any one of them. Zero record of any extra biblical source people who don't believe Christianity. Zero record says that any one of them ever denied that they saw him. And they were alive, many of them at the time the letters were written. All 11 disciples, as you know, suffered horrendously for their testimony of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Not one of them recanted. The Apostle Paul a former Jesus hater said the whole reason he became a Christian is because he saw the risen Jesus on the Damascus road for himself. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said to a bunch of his kinsmen, 3,000 of whom believed the testimony he proclaimed, But God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. The same day, Peter said to those believers, this Jesus God raised up again, a fact to which we are all witnesses. This is how we know God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. These men literally could not get the resurrection of Jesus out of their mouth. It didn't matter how much you beat them, John. Uh, pardon me, Acts chapter four, or imprisoned them, from which many of the books in your Bible were written. It didn't matter if you chased them out of cities and formed mobs in colosseums. It didn't matter if they had to be let down by a basket in a hole in a wall in the middle of the night because everybody wanted to kill them for saying that Jesus is the only Messiah, the only way you can ever get right with God, and we know this because God raised him from the dead. They would just go to the next city and say the same thing. In Acts 4, the whole city was, quote, greatly disturbed. Why? Because they were teaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Again in Acts 4, Peter said to some people who hated God, Jesus, and Peter, you crucified Jesus. You know who he said that too. People who were not there the day Jesus died. Like you. You did it. You did it. Acts 4:10 and God raised him from the dead. Acts 4:33 with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. In Acts 5, God killed a couple people for lying to the Holy Spirit. So Peter said this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. When they go to Gentile cities, they don't change their message. They just say it again. Acts 10, God raised him on the third day and granted that he become visible. When Paul finally starts preaching after three years post-conversion of relearning his Old Testament through the lens of the risen Christ, I believe from the risen Christ, in the desert of Arabia. Here's his first sermon. Acts 13.30, God raised him from the dead. Acts 13.33, God fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 13.34, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's his first sermon. Acts 13.37, he whom God raised... When Paul goes to a new city for the first time with a bunch of smart people, the thought leaders of the day, when he gets to Athens and the philosophers are there, they thought Paul was teaching about, quote, strange deities. Why? Because Acts 17, 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In Acts 17, 31, he looked at those smart people and he said to them, God has already set a day that he will judge all of you. And he's going to do it through a man. And he proved it, Acts 17, 31, by raising Jesus from the dead. In Acts 23, 6, Paul's on trial for his life. They're about to cut his head off. Should he stop talking about the resurrection? Here's Paul's answer. For the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. We'd be here until next Easter if I wanted to dive into the wonder and power of all the text on the resurrection in the New Testament. And there's good reason that the Bible authors grab you by your collar and pull you to the face of the risen Jesus and won't let you go. Because if he's not raised from the dead, never to die again, which is what the scripture says. If he's not reigning in heaven today, if he's not soon to return for his people, if he's not going to establish his kingdom forever, If he's not going to renovate the entire cosmos, if he's not going to Edenify, make the Garden of Eden go to the far reaches of the universe, if he's not going to make a playground for the saints to behold his glory forever and ever, if he's not going to damn all his enemies and make them a footstool for his feet, everybody who won't bow to him, if he's not going to do that, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, our faith is worthless. Quote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Peter said the whole reason you get saved, regenerated, born again, is because 1 Peter 1, 1.3, God raised Jesus from the dead. Romans says he died for your sins to show you how much God loves you, but he saves you, Romans 5.10, by his life. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that Christ has been raised from the dead, which is the guarantee that everybody who believes in him will also be raised. 1 Corinthians 15.20, he's the firstfruits. one writer on the cross and resurrection said it this way. Jesus is the source of life. John 1, 4. In Him was life. He is life itself. And as such, He had authority to pour out His life and death. But death could never hold Him as it might hold a conquered foe. He had chosen the circumstances of His dying and He chose its moment in the same way He would choose the moment when He would take His life back again and in what circumstances. The eternal Logos could taste death, but it was inconceivable that he could be held by it, or even detained a moment longer than he wished. How do you get in on the blessings of this Jesus? How how do you get in on the blessing? The Bible gives us the answer. It's one coin with two sides, and you can't separate them. Repent and believe. Repent from what? Fundamentally, from you. Yes, your sin, but God doesn't send sin to hell, He sends sinners to hell. Turn from you. Turn from all your God belittling, God minimizing self centeredness. Turn from all your self righteousness. Turn from all the reasons you think God should like you more than he likes other people. That's self-righteousness. It's a stench in God's nostrils. If you had anything with which to commend yourself to God, the last thing he ever should have done was sent Jesus to die for you. You're spiritually bankrupt. You don't have two spiritual pennies in your pocket to rub together to tell God why he should like you. Repent. Stop asking God to come along for the ride of your life. Turn from you. Throw yourselves into the arms of Jesus. Repent from being unbiblical. Calling yourself a Christian in definitions that don't accord with the book God wrote. Stop being indifferent to God. Like he doesn't matter. Like he's weightless. Like he's styrofoam pellets. that just ricochet off your life and leave no dent. The Old Testament word for glory and the New Testament word for glory are both heavy, weight, impressive. He leaves a dent, a mark. He shapes you. Repent from being indifferent to God. Living like God is small and doesn't matter. He's a little deity way over there somewhere. Repent from doing your whole life in ignorance of God. Repent from ignoring that He sent His Son to save you from your sin and from yourself. Repent from your sin. Repent from your way. Repent from you. Take sides with God against you. Agree with God. You're the problem. And believe. Believe, I mean, embrace Jesus fully. No division. No parts. You don't a la carte Jesus all of Christ for all of life, full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Not sinlessness, but love for Christ. In light of His love for you, like the mist that rises from the waterfall, you love Him back, and corresponding to that, you hate your sin. It's not that you don't sin, but you have a newfound faith in Jesus distaste for your sin not loving and living in your sin any longer, not sinning without becoming miserable, unless of course you repent, believing upon Jesus who died for you and doesn't require you to clean yourself up before you come to him, but guarantees that he will change you progressively into his likeness. Not only rescuing you from the penalty of your sin, not only forever bringing you into loving fellowship with himself forever, that He will give you a God-given, that is agape, love for His people. He saves you into a people. When we say believe in Jesus, we mean believe in the Jesus who's saving somebody in addition to you. That you're not the end of all God's saving purposes. That He wasn't finished when He got to you. But that you rather just gloriously, one small stroke, in the massive tapestry of what God is weaving together for his glory. You're a nameless, faceless person in the multitude of revelation that's giving praise to the lamb whose face stands out in the crowd. You're saved into a people. And if you don't wanna love God's people, you don't wanna love the God who saves those people. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now, in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. Father, thank you for Jesus, the King of the universe, who one day soon, everybody will see and totally agree. We love you. Pray that you would draw to yourself, all people who have heard this message. In Jesus' name.